0: Well, let's begin. I'll ask Dr. Craig to begin his side of the argument. Thank you.
1: Thank you, and good evening. I want to begin by saying how delighted I am to have the opportunity to be in this country and to participate in tonight's debate. This is my first visit to Australia, and I have just been overwhelmed by the beauty of this city. I have never spoken in a grander, and more august uh, venue than this. And I hope that you'll find tonight's debate to be both stimulating and personally helpful. Now, in tonight's debate, I think we need to ask ourselves two questions. First, what good evidence is there that God exists? And secondly, what good evidence is there that God does not exist? Now, with respect to that second question, I'll leave it up to Dr. Slizek to present the reasons why he thinks that God does not exist. Atheists have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God, but no one's come up with a successful argument. So rather than attack straw men at this point, I'll just wait to hear Dr. Slizek's answer to the following question. What good evidence is there that atheism is true? So let's look instead, then, at that first question. What good evidence is there that God exists? Tonight, I'm going to present five pieces of evidence in support of God's existence. Now, whole books have been written on each one of these, so all I can present here is a brief sketch of each argument and then go into more detail as Dr. Slizek responds to each of them. So, number one, the origin of the universe— Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Why everything exists instead of just nothing? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused. But discoveries in modern astronomy and astrophysics have called this assumption into question. The astrophysical evidence indicates that the universe began to exist in a great explosion called the Big Bang about 15 billion years ago. Moreover, the origin it posits is an absolute origin out of nothing. For not only all matter and energy, but physical space and time themselves came into being at the initial cosmological singularity, which marks the boundary of space and time. As Professor Slizek himself has recently acknowledged, the beginning of the universe out of nothing follows as a direct consequence of Einstein's equation. Today, there is no plausible alternative." End quote. Now this tends to be very awkward for the atheist, for as Anthony Kenney of Oxford University urges, a proponent of the Big Bang Theory, at least if he is an atheist, must believe that the universe came from nothing and by nothing. But surely that doesn't make sense. For such a conclusion is, in the words of philosopher of science Bernolf Kahnitscheider, in head-on collision with the most successful ontological commitment in the history of science, namely the metaphysical principle that out of nothing, nothing comes. So why does the universe exist instead of just nothing? Where did it come from? There must have been a cause which brought the universe into being. We can summarize our argument thus far as follows. Premise one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Two, the universe began to exist. Three, therefore the universe has a cause. Now, from the very nature of the case, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, changeless, timeless, and immaterial being of unimaginable power which created the universe. Moreover, I would argue, it must also be personal. For how else could a timeless cause give rise to a temporal effect like the universe, If the cause were an impersonal set of necessary and sufficient conditions, then the cause could never exist without the effect. If the cause were timelessly present, then its effect would be timelessly present as well. The only way for the cause to be timeless and for the effect to begin to exist in time is for the cause to be a personal agent who freely chooses to create an effect in time without any prior determining conditions. And thus we are brought, not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Isn't it incredible that the Big Bang Theory thus confirms what the Christian theist has always believed? That in the beginning, God created the universe. Now, I simply put it to you, which do you think is more plausible, that the theist is right, or that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of absolutely nothing? I, at least, have no trouble assessing these alternatives. Number two, the complex order of the universe. During the last 30 years, scientists have discovered that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a complex and delicate balance of initial conditions given in the Big Bang itself. The existence of intelligent life depends upon a conspiracy of initial conditions, which must be fine-tuned to a degree that is literally incomprehensible and incalculable. For example, Stephen Hawking has estimated that if the rate of the universe's expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in a hundred thousand million million, the universe would have re collapsed into a hot fireball. PCW Davies has calculated that in order to be suitable for later star formation, without which planets couldn't exist, the relevant initial conditions must be fine tuned to a precision of one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros, at least. He also estimates that a change in the strength of gravity or of the weak force by only one part in ten to the one hundredth power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. Now, there are three alternatives for explaining this remarkable fine-tuning of the universe. Natural law, chance, or design. The first alternative holds that the fine-tuning of the universe is physically necessary. But this alternative flies in the face of physics. As Davies explains, there is nothing in present ideas about laws of initial conditions remotely to suggest that their consistency with the laws of physics would imply uniqueness. Far from it. It seems, then, that the physical universe does not have to be the way it is it could have been otherwise. And thus the first alternative, natural law, is not very plausible. Well, what about the second alternative, that the fine-tuning is due to chance? The problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine-tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. When you compare The range of possible values which the fundamental quantities uh, permitted by the laws of nature could have taken with the range of life-permitting values, you find that the range of life-permitting values is incomprehensibly small in comparison with the wider range of assumable values. The probability that all the quantities would fall, by chance alone, into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know the physical universe does not have to be the way it is. It could have been otherwise. And thus the first alternative, natural law, is not very plausible. Well, what about the second alternative, that the fine-tuning is due to chance? The problem with this alternative is that the odds against the fine-tunings occurring by accident are so incomprehensibly great that they cannot be reasonably faced. When you compare the range of possible values which the fundamental quantities uh, permitted by the laws of nature could have taken with the range of life-permitting values, you find that the range of life-permitting values is incomprehensibly small in comparison with the wider range of assumable values. The probability that all the quantities would fall, by chance alone, into the life-permitting range is vanishingly small. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are vastly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. But that brings us to the third alternative, intelligent design. A one-time agnostic, Davies now says, Through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it as a brute fact. Similarly, Fred Hoyle remarks, A common-sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super-intellect has monkeyed with physics. And Robert Jastrow, the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, calls this the most powerful evidence for the existence of God ever to come out of science. We can summarize our reasoning as follows. Premise one, the fine-tuning of the initial conditions of the universe is due to either law, chance, or design. Two, it is not due to either law or chance. Three, therefore, it is due to design. Number three, objective moral values in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. By objective moral values, I mean moral values which are valid and binding whether anybody believes in them or not. For example, to say that the Holocaust was objectively evil is to say that the Holocaust was wrong even though the Nazis, who carried it out, believed that it was right. And it would still have been wrong, even if the Nazis had won World War II and succeeded in exterminating or brainwashing anybody who disagreed with them. And my argument is that if God does not exist, then moral values are not objective in that sense. Now, many theists and atheists alike concur on this point. For example, Michael Roos, a noted agnostic philosopher of science, explains, The position of the modern evolutionist is that morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth. Considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something, ethics is illusory. I appreciate that when somebody says, Love thy neighbor as thyself, they think, they are referring above and beyond themselves. Nevertheless, such reference is truly without foundation. Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. End quote. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great atheist who proclaimed the death of God, understood that the death of God meant the destruction of all meaning and value in life. I think that Friedrich Nietzsche was right. But we've got to be very careful here. The question here is not, must we believe in God in order to live moral lives? I'm not claiming that we must. Nor is the question, can we recognize objective moral values without believing in God? I certainly think that we can. Rather, the question is, if God does not exist... Do objective moral values exist? Like Professor Roos, I honestly don't see any reason to think that in the absence of God, the morality evolved by Homo sapiens is objective. In the absence of God, we are just accidental byproducts of nature, which have evolved relatively recently on an infinitesimal speck of dust, lost somewhere in a hostile and mindless universe, and which are doomed to perish individually and collectively in a relatively short time. On the atheistic view, some action, say rape, may not be socially advantageous, and so in the course of human development has become taboo. But that does absolutely nothing to prove that rape is really wrong. On the atheistic view, there's nothing really wrong with your raping someone. Thus, without God, there is no absolute right and wrong which imposes itself on our conscience. But the problem is that objective values do exist, and deep down I think we all know it. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, and child abuse aren't just... Uh, socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. As Michael Roos himself admits, the man who says raping little children is morally acceptable is just as mistaken as the man who says 2 plus 2 equals 5. Some things, at least, are really wrong. Similarly, love, equality, generosity, and self-sacrifice are really good. Thus, we can summarize this third consideration as follows. Premise one, if God does not exist, objective moral values do not exist. Two, objective values do exist, from which it follows logically and inescapably. Three, therefore, God exists. Number four, the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. New Testament critics have reached something of a consensus that the historical Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come. And as visible demonstrations of this fact, he carried out a ministry of miracle working and exorcisms, But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just accept on faith or not. But in fact, there are actually three established facts recognized by the majority of New Testament historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one. On the Sunday following his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian scholar who has specialized in the study of the resurrection, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. According to D.H. Van Dahlen, it is extremely difficult to object to the empty tomb on historical grounds. Those who deny it, he says, do so on the basis of theological or philosophical assumptions. Fact number two. On separate occasions, different individuals and groups saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent German New Testament critic Gautz Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, The original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus, despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a dying, much less rising, Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead prior to the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. Luke Johnson, a New Testament scholar from Emory University, muses some sort of powerful transformative experience is required to generate the sort of movement earliest Christianity was. And N.T. Wright, an eminent British scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciple stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. Therefore, it seems to me, the Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number five, the immediate experience of God. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by immediately experiencing him. This was the way people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind but an experiential reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a danger that proofs for God could actually distract your attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes an immediate reality in their lives. So in conclusion, we've yet to see any arguments that God does not exist, and we have seen five reasons to think that God does exist. Together, these reasons constitute a powerful, cumulative case for the existence of God. Until Professor Slezak presents a better case for atheism, I think we can agree that Christianity is the more plausible worldview.
2: Thank you and good evening. Um, In a sense, I should say, I've been debating with Dr Craig for many years now because, uh, as was mentioned before, I give his excellent articles to my students as part of a course I teach at the university. So I've admired his work and it's a privilege to debate with him tonight and it's nice to be able to refute him uh, in person. Uh, Not to mention the chance to convert an entire town hall full of Christians to atheism. Um, I'll address uh, Dr Craig's specific arguments in a moment, but first I need to put things into perspective. Um, I need to uh, talk a little bit about the uh, logic of proof and disproof in the context. The poster said that we're here to debate what, what the evidence proves, or where does the evidence point. If there were really any evidence worth taking seriously, we wouldn't be holding a public debate here in the Town Hall tonight. I mean, we're talking about evidence, and by that I mean the sort of thing understood by scientists or even lawyers. If there were some, any serious evidence, it would be in the scientific textbooks, or at least in the peer-reviewed research journals, uh, and Scientific American or Nature. Even gravity waves or the Higgs boson, some elusive fundamental subatomic particle, gets to be discussed in the journals in Scientific American, though it's pretty doubtful at the moment. They're trying very hard to find it, but I think God is a lot less plausible than the Higgs boson. So if we're debating the question, where does the evidence point, I suppose I could stop right now, but I've still got a few minutes, so. I'd like to talk about the methodology and the rules of the game. Uh, This is what philosophers call the logic and methodology of rational belief in science. Now, as an atheist, I'm not really sure what I'm doing here tonight. I mean, I don't usually get up to give public lectures about all the things I don't believe and for which I don't think there's any evidence. And, I mean, I could get up here every night arguing about UFOs, ESP. The list is literally endless. There's an important logical point here. Dr Craig has posed the challenge to me as follows. We've just heard him say uh, and ask the question, what is the evidence that atheism is true? What good evidence is there to think that God does not exist? And he says atheists have tried for centuries to disprove the existence of God, but no one has been able to come up with a convincing argument. Well, after centuries, perhaps tonight is the night. Dr Craig's challenge is crucially misleading. There can be no disproof of God's existence in principle, but that doesn't mean the theist wins or that there's any reason to believe that God exists. For centuries, no one has succeeded in disproving extraterrestrial intelligence or UFOs. For centuries, no one has been able to come up with a convincing uh, argument against ESP or a million other things one could think of. There's just a lack of evidence. How would you go about disproving all these things? Should you believe in all these things? So, admittedly, It's a bit odd to use the language of proof and disproof because God is not a mathematical theorem like Pythagoras' theorem. Outside of mathematics, proof can only mean roughly evidence and probable reasoning. So the best you can do for rationally justified disbelief or atheism is the lack of sufficient evidence. Disproof doesn't get stronger than that in science anyway. As we learned in our logic textbooks, uh, asserting and denying existence statements are not symmetrical. To get slightly technical for a moment if I was giving a lecture in logic it would be because denying an existential statement or an existence statement is uh, actually a universal statement and you can't in principle verify universal statements about what happens everywhere in the whole universe. So we're dealing with evidence and knowledge of the world and in this case there are only probabilities based on evidence not certainties. Maybe you get certainties on Sundays at St Barnabas. But as the philosopher David Hume said a wise man proportions his belief to the evidence. So, one interesting consequence of that is uh, to do with agnosticism. It's why agnosticism is not warranted. Often in debates, people think that agnosticism is rationally warranted because it seems like an honest, open-minded stance to say that you don't know. But sitting on the fence saying that you don't know is justified only when the evidence is equivocal, when it's balanced evenly. And, of course, you're not agnostics about lots of things. You're not agnostics about Spider-Man or whatever. Of course, in fact, in a certain sense, you understand my point, because you're not agnostics, but atheists, just like me, of course, about other people's gods. And for essentially the same reasons. It's just that I'm consistent and you're not. If, if Dr. Craig were from the Mexican school of uh, uh, Aztec theology, you'd all be on my side. And if he challenged you to disprove the existence of their serpent god, Quetzalcoatl, what could you do? I suppose you could have a debate in the town hall. Well, let me talk uh, directly about uh, the first argument, uh, the cosmological or first cause argument which Dr Craig presented. He posed the question, have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Well, I suggest that if you have, you shouldn't have paid too much attention to the answer you gave. Your own common sense intuition is not the place to look. Dr Craig relies crucially on what seems to make sense to you. Unquestionably, the idea that the universe popped into being uncaused and out of nothing doesn't seem to make much sense, and perhaps is the most bizarre, unimaginable, and unpalatable idea of all. But have you ever asked yourself how empty, four-dimensional space-time could be curved? Have you ever asked yourself how time could slow down? Have you ever asked yourself how the particles separated across the universe can instantaneously interact with each other, so-called non-locality in physics? Or how could they be particles and waves at the same time? Do you believe any of these weird things? Of course not. But who cares what you think? These are not from X-Files or Star Trek, but the most overwhelmingly established and empirically confirmed facts about the world. From physics, of course, and verified uh, in, in, in recent times. Even the um, non-locality which Einstein rejected, so-called spooky action at a distance, as he called it. excuse me. Uh, he refused to accept it, though it has been experimentally verified. Quantum physics is so weird that Richard Feynman joked that he says nobody understands quantum physics, even though it's our most successful scientific theory. What he meant was that you simply can't imagine how the world could possibly be the way it is. But it is. And his advice is that you should stop trying to imagine how it could be so and just do the mathematics. So I have to concede that Dr Craig's position has great appeal precisely because we all share his intuitions. Like Dr Craig, or the scientists themselves for that matter, I can't imagine what on earth it actually means to say there was a beginning and there was no space or time before, because space and time themselves come into being at the initial cosmological singularity. As Dr Craig has noted, such a conclusion is profoundly disturbing for anyone who ponders it. But as Dr Craig points out, that's what our cosmology tells us with overwhelming evidence. So in fact, I agree with his second premise, the universe began to exist. We don't dispute that. Surprisingly, as we've heard, Dr Craig tried to use cosmological science slightly against at least some atheist positions, saying Typically, atheists have said the universe is just eternal, but if you're an atheist, you just follow science, and you don't have to uh, have a view that's contrary to science in that regard. But a central difference between us is what conclusion we draw from the science. Dr Craig relies on science, but only to a certain point, and then he balks at what science says. In fact, of course, as Dr Craig has discussed most knowledgeably in his writings, there is some theoretical disputation about exactly what to say about the earliest moments of the universe concerning time and so on, and whether or not one can perhaps avoid a strict beginning. But I'm happy to agree with his interpretation of the physics for our purposes, so we don't need to discuss, fortunately, things like the hawking penrose singularity theorem and various other esoteric things in physics. So where exactly do we disagree? Well, if you don't go beyond what our science actually tells us, you get what Dr Craig has described, poetically, as a kind of Gettysburg address of atheism by his long-time debating partner, Quentin Smith. Smith says, I quote, The fact of the matter is that the most reasonable belief is that we came from nothing, by nothing, and for nothing. And he goes on to say, if this cosmology is true, our universe exists without cause and without explanation. It exists non-necessarily, improbably, and causelessly. It exists for absolutely no reason at all. Now, of course, Dr. Craig wants to make a further claim and wants to go beyond this to talk about how the universe came to exist. Dr. Craig's other premise is, whatever begins to exist has a cause of its existence. Dr. Craig needs this premise because he wants to prove that God is the cause. Uh, The cause of the universe is God. The question is, where did he get this premise from? Now, this is where, on his own account, he goes beyond, if not against science. Dr. Craig's approach is to simply, and I think gratuitously, elevate common sense intuition as the ultimate court of appeal. However, it has a bad record in the history of science, and in any case, has no independent justification. I share Dr. Craig's intuitions and his gut feelings, but gut feelings don't count for much in science and systematic inquiry, and in my case they're usually indigestion. Dr. Craig is admirably explicit about his views here. I'll quote from what he says. He says, in relation to this question of where the second premise comes from, he says, I'm not going to give a lengthy defense of the point that the beginning of the universe must have been caused. He says, I do not think I need to. For probably no one in his right mind sincerely believes that the universe could pop into existence uncaused out of nothing, end of quote. Well, yes, but Dr. Craig has been challenged on using a notion of cause to explain the origin of the universe, which cannot be the scientific one, because the scientific one can't be applied outside of space and time. Remember, as Dr. Craig agrees, there was no before the Big Bang, and so no cause in the scientifically meaningful sense. Dr. Craig actually concedes the point and says, and I quote, If God's causing the universe cannot be analysed in terms of current philosophical definitions of causality, then so much the worse for those theories. These are the theories which give scientific legitimacy to the notion of cause. Well, what is the basis of Dr Craig's alternative? Well, just one um, step back. Um, When he says this, uh, he gives the game away because he's admitting that there's no scientific justification for his concept of cause, and he says that's just bad luck. But, of course, on this logic, where naive, intuitively plausible, common-sense notions of the solar system, mass, heat, motion, life, and lots of other things in science conflicted with our best scientific theories, Dr. Craig would have said so much the worse for Copernicus, Newton, Darwin, and especially Einstein. So what's the basis of Dr. Craig's alternative to what science says? Again, he's been very explicit, acknowledging the problem of creation is not properly a part of physical cosmology, but it is metaphysical problem. That's a quote. Dr. Craig says it is metaphysically impossible that the universe came into being spontaneously out of nothing, and he speaks of our metaphysical intuition and what seems metaphysically absurd. Of course, that's what the Aristotelians said to Galileo too. Metaphysics is just a bogey to scare people. You shouldn't be bullied or bluffed by such philosophical words. The question is, what are the rules for deciding metaphysical truth? Well, there aren't any. It really amounts to nothing more than a fancy way of saying, I don't like it. Well, I don't either, but you're stuck with it. Well, let me go on to the second argument, the um, argument from design, the teleological argument. The immense improbability of some event is often a good argument for an underlying cause or intelligent purpose and design. But not always. It depends on the context and the background theory for that context. If I see, written in the clouds, I love Kylie, it probably wasn't just the wind accidentally blowing the clouds into this shape. Here we have a background theory according to which we have more plausible explanations for such an improbable event. Human interest and purposes, which shows why it's not so improbable after all. But we can't just transfer this kind of reasoning by analogy, as the philosopher David Hume argued in his dialogues concerning natural religion. We have no background theory for how universes can come into being, the way we have for how writing comes into being. What alternative theory has scientific support which would make chance a worse explanation in this case? How can you compare the entire universe to the way a watch or a house gets made? That's David Hume's question. I mean, it's not just that the universe is bigger. It's that you can't make analogies from the way things work within the world to the way the whole world works or comes into being. Much less can you take what Hume called this little agitation in our brain, our volition or our will, and ascribe it to the entire universe. What's special about the brain, says Hume? Why not pick a different organ, maybe like your kidney? The point is that you can't actually infer anything from the mere unlikelihood of an event. As Hume asked, how would things look if they were, in fact, an accident? A huge coincidence. <coughs> if they were, well, uh, they would look as though they weren't. That's the nature of coincidences. So unless you know something about the background, something else about the background, the mere fact of the improbability on its own. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> the mere fact. Oh, excuse me. That's <coughs> okay. Thank you. The mere fact of the improbability on its own doesn't tell you anything uh, that uh, is contrary to the possibilities of chance. There's a very compelling fallacy which I'd like to try to explain quickly in this kind of reasoning about improbabilities. Astronomically extravagantly improbable things happen all the time by chance and we we don't seek alternative explanations. Consider a hand of 13 cards dealt in the game of bridge. It's not as many as the number of constants for making the world, which Dr Craig pointed to. But the argument is exactly the same. If you got dealt a hand of all 13 cards which turned out to be in the same suit, say all spades, what would you think? Well, perhaps someone stacked the deck because the odds against such an amazing fluke are actually one chance in 635,000 million. You'd stop the game and you'd write to column eight and tell them what an amazing coincidence you had. But let's say you're dealt the usual, ordinary, boring hand of mixed up cards. You don't accuse the dealer of cheating and call the Sydney Morning Herald every time you're dealt a hand. But, actually, each hand you are dealt is just as improbable, 635,000 million to one. They're all equally improbable and you have to get dealt one of them. It's just that we don't find most of them very interesting. So what? No matter how many cards or physical constants, the outcome has to be one of these. They're equally unlikely as this one that we happen to be in. So the mere unlikelihood of this arrangement is not on its own enough to conclude, on its own, it's not enough to conclude that it couldn't have been an accident. We might not have been here, of course, in those other worlds to remark on our good fortune. But that's like people who survive against great odds in the war. They're the ones who get to tell the story. It doesn't mean that their amazing luck was anything other than amazing luck. The famous Cornell astronomer Carl Sagan uh, wrote an essay once about Norman Bloom, the messenger of God. When I was a graduate student, I used to see Norman Bloom hanging around the gates of Columbia University in New York, distributing his pamphlets in which he gave a novel proof of God, in this case from the telephone directory. I think it only worked for the Manhattan directory and not for Brooklyn. If you did, apparently, according to Norman Bloom, some calculations on the telephone numbers, you multiply the first by the second and divide it by the third, something like that, you get the number one or zero, I don't remember exactly, but something entirely unlikely and fantastic. And the question is, what were the odds against that? Well, Norman Bloom said it's a zillion to one. And he says it can't be an accident, That's the hand or the mind of God. And the poor fellow, he writes on his pamphlet, that he's been offering all the famous professors at Columbia University, Harvard, Princeton, and everybody up and down the East Coast, $10,000 if they can prove him wrong. Well, nobody's taken up his offer, so he thinks he wins. I think we've heard that one before. One final remark on perfection. David Hume, the philosopher, pointed out, or he asked the question, how do we know that this world is so perfect anyway? What comparisons can we make with other worlds? Hume facetiously suggests that perhaps this is a botched-up attempt of a retired, superannuated deity in occupational therapy, or the the efforts of an infant deity. These are his jokes, not mine. But as far as life is concerned, it was the late uh, Stephen Jay Gould who pointed out that it's actually the imperfections of the world that are the best evidence, in this case, for evolution by natural selection rather than design. For example, why would an omnipotent God design horses' hooves, bat wings, and porpoise flippers, all with five fingers. Like our hands. I mean, swimming with fleshy, webbed fingers seems to work all right, but if you were an omnipotent designer, you could come up with something better. If I were designing a porpoise, I'd give it a propeller. (laughs) We're talking about omnipotence, after all. Dr Craig also talked about the question of values and uh, morality, and I'm quickly running out of time, and so... um, not only on that issue but also the question of Jesus and his historicity and what conclusions one can draw from that Um, I might come back to that uh, more fully in my uh, rebuttals and my second uh, attempt to to have a a discussion but let me just go back while I've got a couple of seconds to mention something relevant to that I mentioned uh, and this is relevant to the question of the historicity of Jesus and how one goes about believing these cases I mentioned the Mexican God Quetzalcoatl the Mexicans have their own sacred book in which I recorded fantastic stories about Quetzalcoatl. But of course, you wouldn't believe any of their miracles for a moment. And you don't care how many Mexican Indians saw them with their own eyes. And of course, their book is only 500 years old. As the philosopher David Hume pointed out, human testimony is pretty unreliable, especially when it comes to claims which contravene everything we know about the laws of nature. Or perhaps, maybe Mexican Indians are less reliable than ancient Middle Easterners. And, of course, they tell me that if I don't accept Quetzalcoatl into my life, when I die, I'll never get to see the great enchilada in the sky for all eternity. (laughs) That's pretty mean, and I share Galileo's view that it would be pretty perverse of God to have given us a rational, sceptical mind and then expect us not to use it. Thank you.
0: Well, now, our debaters have laid out their case. We now will have uh, two periods where they speak for 12 minutes each and then eight minutes each where they will engage in uh, tough intellectual wrestling with each other so that the unsupported assertions can be uncovered and dealt with. So, these will go uh, 12 minutes, 12 minutes, 8 minutes, 8 minutes without interruption. Thank you.
1: Well, I want to thank uh, Professor Slezak for his uh, trenchant response to my opening arguments. Uh, I remain unconvinced, as you might expect. Let me explain why. I first said we need to ask, what is the evidence for atheism? And here Dr. Slezak says that the only evidence against God's existence is the absence of evidence for God's existence. Now, this admission is highly significant. Because it means that he tacitly agrees that all of the traditional arguments for atheism, like the problem of evil or the incoherence of the concept of God, all of these arguments fail. The only argument for atheism is the absence of evidence for God. But the problem here is that the absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. Uh, To give an example, most cosmologists believe that the universe went through an era of inflationary expansion soon after the Big Bang. As yet, we have no positive evidence, however, for this era. But does that mean, therefore, that such an era did not exist? Well, obviously not. Or, to give a more mundane example, we have no evidence that there is gold on the planet Pluto. But does that mean, therefore, that there is no gold on Pluto? Well, clearly not. So, when, then, does the absence of evidence count as evidence that something does not exist? Well, theorists of knowledge agree that the lack of evidence for some entity X counts as positive evidence against X's existence only in the case that if X did exist, then we should expect to see more evidence of X's existence than what we do see. For example, The absence of evidence of a planet between Venus and the Earth is a pretty good reason to think that such a planet does not exist, because if it did exist, we should have all kinds of evidence for it. Now, apply that, then, in the case of God. The absence of evidence for God's existence counts as evidence against God's existence only in the case that if God did exist then we should see more evidence of his existence than what we do, in fact, see. In practical terms, what that means is this. If God exists, should we expect to see more evidence of his being than the origin of the universe out of nothing, the exquisite fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, the apprehension of a realm of moral and aesthetic values, the radical claims and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and the immediate experience of personal fellowship with God? Well, I think the answer is obviously not. So to carry his argument, Dr. Slezak has to prove that it is highly probable that if God exists, we should have more evidence of his existence than what we do in fact have. And that, I think, is sheer speculation. And thus, in the case of God, I do not think that the absence of evidence is at all a positive argument against the existence of God. And yet, that's all he's had to offer you tonight on behalf of atheism. So I don't think we've seen any good reason to think that atheism is true. Now, what about that second question? Uh, What is the evidence that God does exist? Here I offered five lines of evidence. First, the origin of the universe. Notice that Dr. Slizek responds to this argument by agreeing with that crucial second premise that the universe began to exist. In order to deny the conclusion, therefore, he is forced to deny the first premise, that whatever begins to exist has a cause, and he turns his guns upon it. Now, by a cause, I mean something that produces or brings into being its effect. And my argument is that whatever begins to exist must have a cause in that sense. Now, notice that Dr. Slezak does not refute this causal principle. He gives no reason at all to deny that this premise is true or to think that it is false. He merely asks the question, what reason is there to think that it is true? Well, let me give two reasons on behalf of the causal premise. Number one, I think it is an obvious first principle of metaphysics. Being does not come from non-being. Something does not come from nothing. Atheists themselves recognize this truth. For example, David Hume, who was something of a hero to Professor Slissick, wrote to John Stewart, I never asserted so absurd a proposition as that anything might arise without a cause. I only maintained that our certainty of the falsehood of that proposition proceeded neither from intuition nor demonstration, but from another source. The atheist philosopher Kai Nielsen gives the following illustration. He says, suppose you suddenly hear a loud bang, and you ask me, what made that bang? And I reply, nothing. It just happened. He says, you wouldn't accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. Indeed, it really is unintelligible how being could come from absolute non-being. Just think about it. In the case of the universe, prior to the Big Bang, there wasn't even the potentiality of the existence of the universe. But then how could the universe become actual if there wasn't even the potentiality of its being? Or think again. Suppose that something could come into existence from nothing. If that were the case, then it's inexplicable why just anything and everything doesn't pop into being out of nothing. But no one here tonight is worried that while you're listening to this debate, a horse may have popped into being uncaused out of nothing in your living room and is there defiling the carpet right now as we speak. As Dr. Slezak himself has written in another context, only academics could be so ridiculous. If made seriously outside the seminar room, such claims would be evidence of clinical derangement. (laughs) In fact, the suggestion that the universe popped into being uncaused out of nothing is worse than magic, when you think about it. At least in the case of magic, when the magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, at least you've got the magician and, and the hat. But in the case of atheism, the universe or the rabbit just pops into being out of absolutely nothing. And I submit to you that's just metaphysically crazy. So that's the first reason, I think, on behalf of the causal premise. Secondly, the causal premise is a universally verified and never falsified principle of empirical science. This should be the highest form of proof to Dr. Slezak as an empiricist. And notice you cannot dismiss the causal principle like a taxicab when you get to the origin of the universe. The only reason that anyone would deny it in that context is out of a desire to avoid the theism that it implies. But that is simply question-begging in favor of atheism. So, in short, I think that the first premise is impeccable, that we have good reason to believe that whatever begins to exist has a cause. But Dr. Slicek insists the Big Bang, he says, cannot have a cause because... um, There was nothing before it, and here he quotes uh, Quentin Smith on this head. Unfortunately, he misquotes Smith, uh, who is the collaborator with me in our book Theism, Atheism, and Big Bang Cosmology. What Quentin actually says in the book on page 120 is that the, uh, the initial singularity cannot be the result of a prior natural process. But he says this still leaves open the question of whether the singularity or the Big Bang is an effect of a supernatural cause. He notes that such a supernatural explanation does not violate the singularity theorems because it does not try to extend the space-time manifold beyond the singularity. Now, Dr. Slasek says, well, the Big Bang can't have a cause because there was no time before the Big Bang. But notice the hidden assumption here. He assumes that causes must always precede, their effects in time, but that's patently false. Causes can be simultaneous with their effects in time. And I would say in the case of God's creating the universe, God's creating the universe is simultaneous with the universe coming into being. Thus, even though there is no time before the Big Bang, God can create the universe by creating it at the moment of the Big Bang. Now what about that second argument based on the complex order of the universe? I argued that the fine-tuning of the universe is due neither to law nor chance, and therefore it's plausibly due to design. Now Dr. Slizek responds by saying, but any universe is equally improbable, and therefore there's nothing to be explained. This is just a misunderstanding of the argument. We're not talking here about the probability of our universe existing. Rather, we're talking about the specified probability of the universe's being life Permitting. As William Dembski explains in his book, uh, The Design Inference, published by Cambridge University Press, the way we detect intelligent design in every area of life is by the combination of high improbability with an independently given pattern. Take that bridge hand, for example. Any combination of cards is equally improbable, that's true. But if somebody deals himself a perfect bridge hand whenever he deals the deck, It is the combination of high improbability plus that independently given pattern of what a winning bridge hand is that tips you off that this is due to design, not chance. So when Dr. Slasek says, so what if this person deals himself a perfect bridge hand? Well, I would just simply say that there are probably any number of folks here tonight who'd like to uh, take you up for a few hands of cards after the debate, if he really can't detect the difference between design and uh, mere chance. Now in the case of the universe, it's the combination of the pattern of variables necessary for intelligent life plus the incomprehensible improbability that these variables all occur by chance that tips us off to design. Dr. Slazick says, however, but if the universe were not life-permitting, then we wouldn't be here to be surprised about it. But as the atheist philosopher J.L. Mackey explains, and I quote, this is not a good reply. There is only one actual universe, and it is therefore surprising that the elements of this unique setup are just right for life when they might easily have been wrong. This is not made less surprising by the fact that if it had not been so, no one would have been here to be surprised. So I think we've got good reason for believing the fine-tuning of the universe, which is necessary even for evolution to occur, uh, points to intelligent design as the cause of the universe. Dr. Slizek did not respond to my arguments on the basis of objective moral values or the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus or the immediate experience of God. All of these, I think, present a powerful cumulative case for the fact that the Christian God exists, a case which I believe is more plausible than any case that can be mounted on behalf of an atheistic worldview.
2: Thank you. Well, let me take up uh, what I said I'd do and uh, as Dr. Craig uh, challenged me to respond to the question of values and morals and see if I can also deal with some of the uh, remarks that uh, Dr. Craig just made. In fact, perhaps we'll do it in reverse. Let me immediately take up one or two of the questions that he asked about. He uh, didn't accept my challenge about the onus of proof and what it takes to uh, establish atheism or prove atheism. And so I have to perhaps restate that a little bit more clearly. The atheist doesn't say that God does not exist categorically. This is not the claim. Therefore, it's uh, not the case that one has to actually prove anything except in the ordinary sense in which one is entitled to be sceptical about things which you don't think exist. That's why I gave the examples of all the things which we are quite happy to be atheists or disbelievers about. Science can't give you better than that. Science can't actually categorically show that God doesn't exist. And if that's what Dr. Craig is demanding, well, atheists can't do it. Nothing in science can establish that in the whole universe. So uh, I'm open-minded. I accept the possibility that God exists. I just need better evidence than we've had up to now. On the question of the premise which I challenged, the question that whatever begins, to have, uh, whatever begins to exist must have a cause, I don't see that Dr Craig has answered my challenge at all on this. He repeated the expression that this is an obvious first principle of metaphysics. But I made a fuss about saying, or at least asking the question, what are the rules for metaphysics? Where does your metaphysics come from? if it transcends science in some sense it goes beyond the bounds of what science which is our only reliable form of inquiry the only things for which we have systematic and reliable beliefs what are the rules for metaphysics how does dr craig get his metaphysical intuitions when you search that things are metaphysically impossible what's the determinant of what's metaphysically impossible it's just what you feel i went to some trouble to explain that one's feelings of plausibility and implausibility don't count for anything so you can't just appeal And, of course, Dr. Dr. Craig gave lots of homely examples. He talked about horses turning up in your living room and uh, the magician taking uh, the rabbit out of the hat. These are precisely, to beg the question, physics is precisely uh, a different case, and you can't make the case out uh, from these homely examples where our ordinary conceptions, of cause do work, and there we, of course, uh, don't accept that something can come out of nothing. The whole point about modern physics as dr craig himself repeats when he quotes these bizarre claims of modern science is precisely this uh, uh, impenetrable and unimaginable claim that the singularity according to the standard big bang theory which of course uh, there are alternatives but let's accept that it actually says and dr craig and smith have argued about this It seems to say, and I've got this quote somewhere, which I won't look for now, where Smith goes into poetic raptures about how dizzying the whole concept is, is that you might have come out of nothing. It's certainly incomprehensible, but I don't think Dr Craig and I disagree on the claim that this is what the science says. And my question is, when you go beyond science, what's the rationale and the justification for going beyond what science says? If the physics is wrong, then you can talk about other things. But currently, it seems to me, we're forced to accept that. Well, let me talk a little bit about the uh, questions of meaning and value. Dr Craig thinks that if there's no God, then you have no basis for saying that rape or murder is really morally wrong. He said on the atheistic view, if you explain morality in other ways, as he quoted from uh, Roos, the philosopher of biology, for example, if it's just a matter of social consequences, if you escape the social consequences, then he says there's nothing really wrong with raping someone or there's nothing really wrong with uh, the Holocaust. Now this is extremely misleading and it's a kind of a trick, it's a play on words. For the atheist and the person like Roos who doesn't believe that there's a transcendent uh, basis for morality in God's commands, it's not fair to charge them or seemingly charge them with thinking that rape is all right. That's how Dr. Craig seems to present it and that's misleading and uh, an inappropriate way to capture what's going on the point here is that we can share dr craig's intuition i think as with the unimaginability of the big bang one does have some kind of instinct that if there's not a god or some transcendent uh, being to give the commands then ethics seems to lack a basis if it's just based on human life and uh, uh, perhaps evolution or other other social uh, bases in other words God's commands, or some cosmically transcendent status of our rules of conduct, uh, are not the only basis for genuine, real, objective moral values, although we may naively, intuitively think so. In any case, it seems to me that that's all you can get without independent grounds for thinking that God exists. How does Dr Craig in this case establish that there are absolute moral values? It's a bit like the uh, rabbit out of the hat and the horse that's in your dining room. He needs to get this uh, 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 claim to make his argument work, but he establishes that there are these transcendent absolute moral values by asking you. He appeals to what you really know, and he says, we all know that rape is really wrong. Well, yes, and we all agree independently of what you think your ethics is based on. As philosophers say, your metaethics could be something other than God said so. And that still gives you the uh, justification for saying that rape is really wrong. So um, uh, Dr Craig's appeal only shows that we all think that there are certain values and emphatically not that they're cosmically absolute and beyond all pure human experience and preferences or perhaps innate endowments biologically. All he's actually shown is that we have strong moral intuitions, certainly not that these judgments depend on being absolute, whatever that may mean. So again, to repeat, the evidence of our firm commitments to certain values is consistent with lots of other grounds for their justification. And for better or for worse, there's no escaping the fact that there's actually some considerable degree of variability in moral judgments within societies and certainly between them. So whose firm judgments are to count as the really real absolute ones? You may think God told you, but so do my friends the Aztecs who cut people's hearts out to make sure the sun comes up each day. So moral values don't have some kind of cosmic status external to all human life and thought. Indeed, if the only basis for moral judgments is that God said so, This may be seen as a diminished, less dignified view of values, since they're not based on reason, just blind obedience to some unfathomable authority. I think myself better a morality which is derived from rational considerations and human sentiments of justice, fairness, compassion, equality, and above all, human happiness. I'd suggest that these are a foundation for moral values, even if they don't exist in the Andromeda galaxy. I don't think one can do better than my favourite atheist, Bertrand Russell, who said... The good life is one inspired by love and guided by knowledge in any case i think that's all you're likely to get well i've got five more minutes perhaps i can make a quick analogy there's a close analogy in the case of linguistics i think we share very strong intuitions about what's correct and incorrect in our use of our native tongue if a child says he goed to the beach we know this is wrong we all know the rules of our language and we have absolutely clear judgments about these but the objectivity of these judgments doesn't mean that they're absolute in any sense. We hardly need God to explain why we all speak English correctly and know what's right and wrong. Now, I know that lapses of grammar are not the same as moral lapses, despite what some school teachers think. But the analogy, the analogy is quite close. The reality and the force of the moral precepts or the judgments don't tell you their basis or origin in either case. Let me say something about Jesus and miracles. Like the argument from design, the arguments from the biblical miracles I don't think have improved since David Hume's trenchant criticisms of the 18th century. For example, I don't have to doubt the historicity of Jesus or the evidence of the Bible as such, though there's plenty of room for ordinary, non-theistic, historical dispute. Let's say the Channel 9 60 Minutes team, or better perhaps the ABC Four Corners team, was actually there and did a documentary. It's all on tape. The crucifixion, the cave with the missing person and interviews with the witnesses and all that. So let's say that it's not a 2,000-year story that's handed down, but a first-hand documentary. You still shouldn't believe the story of the Bible. And Dr Craig made a point about the empty cave, even if it were a live report, where the facts are not in doubt. It's not the facts, but the interpretation or explanation of the facts which are in dispute. Are they best explained by miracles or in some other way? Dr Craig evidently can't think of any other more plausible way to explain the empty cave besides a miraculous one. I can think of lots. He wasn't really dead. He was just feeling a bit sick and some friends got him out of the cave when no one was looking. Now, you're not expected to like that answer, but the point is it doesn't matter if you don't like that particular story. Any story other than the one that's miraculous, one that's consistent with the laws of nature, is more plausible than the miraculous one. If you can imagine an explanation consistent with the laws of nature, why would you prefer a miraculous one and say that it's more plausible? I think I'll stop there. Thank you.
1: In responding to Dr. Slezak's critique, I would like to pick up first on my third argument concerning objective moral values in the world. And here, frankly, after even reading his material as well as listening to his response, I'm not clear as to which of my premises he denies. My first premise is that if God does not exist, then objective moral values do not exist. And he seems to grant this premise. He says that moral values are rooted in human sentiments, that to commit a moral lapse is something like doing a grammatical error. Now, that's exactly my point. Without God, there is no basis for thinking that human morality is objective. It's just rooted in human sentiments and social conventions. Uh, Michael Roos, in his article, is rape wrong on Andromeda. Ask the question, would rape be wrong for other intelligent uh, organisms, like extra ter- extraterrestrials? And he says, although the immorality of rape is a human constant, we cannot thereby assume that it will be a constant for other organisms, including extraterrestrial intelligent organisms. Certainly, if we look elsewhere in the animal world, we see that acts which look very much like rape occur on a regular basis. Furthermore, there are good biological reasons why this sort of behavior frequently occurs. If a male animal is prepared to attempt rape on occasion, then he is more likely to reproduce than otherwise. Now, this raises some very troublesome questions. First, how should these extraterrestrials who regard rape as moral behave toward us? Uh, What if they're uh, sufficiently similar to, to mammals to be able to copulate with human females? Now, to their thinking, raping throughout the earth would be morally acceptable. And if we protested, but we humans don't think that's right, then on Dr. Slazik's view, all that they would have to say is, well, that may be your human sentiments, but that morality doesn't apply on Andromeda, as Professor Slasek said. It's just an ephemeral result of your evolutionary conditioning, and uh, our doing this is simply akin to a grammatical mistake. We speak a different moral language than you do, and for us, what we're about to do to you is perfectly acceptable. In fact, suppose these extraterrestrials were as superior to us as we are to pigs and cattle, and they decided to farm the earth and use us for laboring animals or even food. What could we say to show them that what they're doing is immoral or is wrong? There's nothing on an atheistic view that we could do to show them that human morality is objective. But secondly, why shouldn't the sexual predator rate, if he feels like it? Extraterrestrials do it. Animals do it. Why shouldn't he do it? Dr. Slezak has no answer to this question. All he can say is that we humans feel that rape is wrong because it springs from human sentiments and conditioning. Uh, but so what? There's nothing objectively valid about human morality that would show that such actions are wrong. So I think that he and I basically agree that if God doesn't exist, then objective moral values don't exist. But I maintain that objective moral values do exist, and this is apparent from our moral values. Uh, intuitions concerning moral situations. As the ethicist Walter Sinnott Armstrong writes, the most common way to choose among moral theories is to test how well they cohere with our intuitions or consider judgments about what is morally right and wrong, about the nature or ideal of a person, and about the persons of morality. And in that sense, the apprehension of objective moral values is like the apprehension of physical objects in the world. You can't prove to the skeptic who denies the veridicality of our sensory intuitions that there are physical objects. You can't prove to the moral skeptic who denies the veridicality of our moral perceptions that there is a realm of objectively existing moral values. But in the same way that we believe in the reality of physical objects in the physical world, I think we're justified in believing in the reality of a realm of objectively existing moral values. So. Uh, I think that if you agree with me that there are certain things that are really right and wrong, like child abuse, cruelty, and slavery, then you will agree with me that we need God as a transcendent foundation for those objective moral values. What about the evidence concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Note that Dr. Sleszak is prepared to grant the radical claims of Jesus, the facts of his empty tomb, post-mortem appearances, and origin of the disciples' belief. What he tries to do is to offer a counter-explanation, and I was astonished to hear him offer the old apparent death theory. This is the theological equivalent of the flat earth theory. It's been dead ever since D.F. Strauss uh, nailed it in 1835. It has been abandoned by everyone. There's no contemporary historian who would defend the apparent death theory. Why? Well, simply because there was absolutely no doubt that the crucifixion was fatal to Jesus. The Romans were professional executioners, and they ensured the death of its victims by a spear thrust into the side of the crucified victim. Even if Jesus hadn't died, secondly, he would have certainly died of exposure in the tombs. He was bleeding from open wounds in the wrists, feet, and side without immediate medical attention. He would have certainly expired almost at once. Thirdly, even if he had revived, he was sealed inside a tomb with a huge disc-shaped stone across the door. There was no way that a man inside could get out. Fourth, even if he had gotten out, the appearance of a half-dead Jesus desperately in need of medical attention and bandaging would hardly have elicited in the disciples the worship of him as the risen Lord and the conqueror of death. The the theory is ridiculous. Uh, And the theory finally turns Jesus into a charlatan, which is just a tawdry caricature of the historical Jesus. So that's why no contemporary historian uh, thinks that the resurrection uh, of Jesus can be explained away by apparent death theory. Dr. Slezak says, but it's a better explanation than a miraculous one. I would recommend, if he hasn't read it yet, to read John Ehrman's book, Hume's Abject Failure. That is this prominent philosopher of science's description of Hume's argument against miracles. The argument is completely fallacious. What is improbable is the hypothesis that Jesus rose naturally from the dead. I agree anything is more probable than that, but that's not the hypothesis. The hypothesis is God raised Jesus from the dead, and there's nothing intrinsically improbable about that. And therefore, I think we have good grounds for believing that the best explanation of the evidence is that the disciples were telling the truth. God raised Jesus from the dead, and that entails that God exists finally, my fifth point was the immediate experience of God, and that's yet to be addressed in today's debate. In the absence of any good arguments for atheism, why shouldn't I believe in my immediate experience of God? Why shouldn't? I trust it. Why should I think it's delusory? God is real to me. In the absence of arguments for atheism, why not trust that experience? As for the evidence for atheism, I just want to point out a huge shift of ground on Dr. Slasek's part in the debate tonight. He now admits that the absence of evidence is not positive evidence that God does not exist, but he just says, I don't have a belief that God exists. That, however, is not atheism. Atheism is the view there is no God. What he's describing is mere agnosticism. So even if all my arguments fail, we're still left just with neutral ground, not with any positive reason to believe in atheism or the view that God does not exist, which is what the debate was supposed to be about tonight.
2: Thank you. Perhaps I'll just go backwards, uh, picking the uh, immediately last remarks that Dr Craig made. It's interesting he's telling me that I'm not an atheist, I'm an agnostic. Well, I'm an atheist. And I'm the only kind, I'm the only kind of atheist you can get. Because if you're an atheist in the sense that you um, uh, judge your beliefs according to reliable evidence the way science does, I tried to say that there's no better you can do in science. And Dr. Craig suggested I'm an agnostic. But again, let me just repeat, I don't think he addressed the distinction I made. I said that being an agnostic, which we often are in other situations, is when we are uh, not sure which way to go. We sit on the fence and suspend judgment when we think the evidence is equal. Then you say, well, I don't know what to believe. But when the evidence is overwhelmingly, or let me put it differently, there is no evidence that looks credible. It's not in the peer-reviewed journals. You're entitled to disbelieve. And atheism can't get better than that. If, now, this is just a matter of definition. If we're going to argue about what defines an atheist, well, then perhaps we can agree to disagree on a definition. That's trivial. That's not important. I'm trying to inca- indicate what the substantial basis for rational belief here is. Whatever you call it, I'm suggesting you don't get better in terms of scepticism and grounds for disbelief than having no or very little evidence on one side. So that's the kind of atheist which I am. Let me go to the other point that Dr Craig made. He bases his uh, belief, at least partly, in what he described as his immediate experience. He said, God is real to me. I don't doubt that for a minute. I don't doubt the genuine sentiments, the experiences that people profess. But that doesn't count as the sort of evidence which uh, science and uh, rational belief uh, depends on. I needn't give all sorts of examples how uh, personal experiences can be delusory, they can be uh, uh, caused by all sorts of illegal substances, one can do all sorts of things... And personal experiences get discounted when they conflict with other systematic grounds for belief. So, well, we all know this. This is uh, a common observation. So on its own, I don't have to doubt uh, anybody's personal experiences. This doesn't uh, uh, really cut any ice. Um, As for Jesus, um, uh, Dr. Craig didn't like my particular story, not surprisingly. But my claim is that uh, I find it inconceivable, in fact, that the only possibility, given historical events that happened 2,000 years ago, about which surely even the uh, pure historical evidence must be open to serious doubt, that you cannot think of more uh, naturalistic explanations besides uh, God's intervention and the miraculous one. I'm simply uh, stuck not being able to accept that there's no alternative given such distant historical uh, cases. Um, Let me uh, try one other uh, topic which we've touched on. Um, the ethical one, and then I'll go back to uh, the uh, onus of proof. Um, In the case of ethics, uh, Dr Craig keeps insisting there's nothing objective about our moral values unless God is there to somehow guarantee them. Now, of course, he's right. I agree with his premise that if God does not exist, then there's no absolute moral values, because, in a sense, one can define absolute moral values as somehow due to God's commands. But he wants to slide from that in a sense by defining absolute as objective but objective can be many things besides the claim that god guarantees the reality as it were of our moral judgments and so it's just not fair to insist that the only basis for real moral values is a transcendent uh, being <coughs> <Excuse me. coughs> and the further point that follows from that which is very important in relation to the morality if you do believe that You need to have independent grounds, not based on the moral argument. You have to have independent reasons for believing that God exists. And that's not uh, derived from the ethical argument. So it doesn't stand on its own. And I agree, if God would exist, we might have some transcendent basis for moral values. But you have to have some independent grounds for that. So let me go back then to the question of the the, uh, rationale and the uh, logic of belief. Let me give an example. Um, Let me try a different tack. Um, I was pleased to hear that Dr Craig referred to it in passing, but uh, on another occasion uh, expressed scepticism about the possibility that there's intelligent life anywhere else in the universe. The SETI program, and you would have seen perhaps in the uh, film uh, Contact, uh, is uh, an active research program searching for intelligent life elsewhere in the universe. And Dr Craig makes a very interesting point, which I'm in full agreement with. The physicists are kind of cowboys in this, and they run around thinking that the laws of nature will produce, uh, inevitably, uh, life and intelligence elsewhere, and radio telescopes elsewhere in the universe. And he's rightly sceptical, saying that the biologists, the zoologists, know better. The odds against intelligence and radio telescopes somewhere are infinitesimally small. So in other words, Dr Craig uh, is a sceptic about artificial, uh, sorry, uh, extraterrestrial intelligence. God is an extraterrestrial, in fact, extra-cosmic intelligence of a certain kind, and it seems to me the reasoning that Dr Craig applies there is exactly the reasoning which I apply to God. He is sceptical because there's no good evidence, and he's got all sorts of, I think, perfectly good arguments to think that it's not likely. So the question is, why does he have the scepticism and the disbelief about extraterrestrial intelligence and doesn't apply the same reasoning, which is the only one that I think is available in the case of God as well? Thank you.
0: We have three more things to do before we all get on our bikes and go home. And the first, we'll we'll have the concluding statements from the two doctors. It's been agreed that at this point in these last five minute cases there'll be no new material uh, introduced. It'll be a chance for final rebuttals and to sum up the case. So to conclude his case i invite first uh, Dr Craig and then Dr Slezak to speak.
1: Well, I hope that you found the debate tonight as stimulating as I have. I'd like in my final statement to draw together some of the threads of the debate and see if we can come to some conclusions. My first question I posed was, what is the evidence for atheism? And I don't care to quibble about semantics over what is an agnostic or an atheist, but I think it's very evident in tonight's debate that the only argument for atheism has been the absence of evidence for God. But remember, I explained at some length, that the lack of evidence for any entity X counts as evidence against X's existence only in the case that if X did exist, then we should expect to see more evidence of X's existence than what we do in fact see. And in God's case, Dr. Slezak would have to meet the challenge of showing that we should have more evidence of God's existence if he existed than all of the evidence that we, in fact, do have, and he's never tried to carry that burden of proof in tonight's debate. So I think it's very apparent that at least we're left on neutral ground tonight, that we have no good reason to think that God does not exist. Now what about the evidence that God does exist? First I argued from the origin of the universe. Dr. Slesek admitted tonight that the universe began to exist, and he disputed the causal premise. I gave two reasons, however, to support the causal premise. First, that it's an obvious metaphysical principle. And he said, well, what are the rules of your metaphysics here? Well, look at the two sub-arguments I gave for why it's obvious. I said, in the case of the universe, prior to the Big Bang, there's not, not even the potentiality of its being. But how could something become actual if there's not even the potentiality of its existence? And secondly, I challenged him to explain if things can pop into being uncaused from nothing, Why doesn't anything and everything come into being out of nothing? Why just the universe? I can't see any answer to these questions, and therefore it does seem to me we have good metaphysical grounds for thinking that it's impossible that things just pop into being like universes uncaused out of nothing. But secondly, this is all academic anyway, because I pointed out that the causal principle is a universally confirmed and never disconfirmed principle of empirical science so that it does meet the very standards of proof as an empiricist that Dr. Slezak wants. So certainly I think we have more reason to believe that first premise than to deny the premise, and that therefore it is more plausible than not to believe that the universe had a cause of its existence, which was a personal, timeless, spaceless, and immaterial creator. Secondly, I argued from the fine-tuning of the universe to intelligent design, And here Dr. Slezak dropped his arguments about the equal improbability of any universe, or if the universe weren't life-permitting, we wouldn't be surprised. Notice what he, as an atheist, has to believe. He has to believe not only that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of nothing, but that when it did so, for no reason at all, it was inexplicably fine-tuned for the existence and evolution of intelligent life with a complexity and delicacy that simply defies comprehension. And I say, if that's the best shot that atheists has to offer, then let those who decry the rationality of theism be henceforth forever silent, because nothing could take more faith to believe than that. Thirdly, I argued about objective moral values. And here he simply said in his last speech, well, what do you mean by absolute and objective? I defined what I meant by objective, values that are binding and valid independently of whether anybody believes in them or not. And it seems to me that if god doesn't exist then moral values aren't like that they're just products of biological and social evolution on the atheistic view we're just animals advanced primates and animals don't have moral duties to one another so it does seem to me that we have good grounds to think that without god moral values are just subjective and relative but if you agree with me that our moral intuitions are sound, that there are certain things that are truly right and wrong, then you will agree with me that God exists. What about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? I refuted his apparent death theory. He says, well, there must be more naturalistic explanations. Well, what are they? Modern scholarship recognizes no plausible naturalistic explanation to the resurrection of Jesus. And finally, what about the immediate experience of God? He says, well, it could be delusory. Yes, it could be, but you need to give me an argument for that. In the absence of arguments for atheism, why should I deny the reality of my experience of God through Jesus Christ? God has been a living reality to me ever since I uh, experienced the spiritual rebirth uh, at the age of 16, a reality I've walked with for over 30 years. And I believe that if you will seek him with an open mind and an open heart, this is a reality that you can find in your life as well. Thank you.
2: Well, Dr. Craig uh, says that uh, I should hold that uh, we should see more evidence for God's existence, and he's exactly right. in my position, I think that if one looks around, the question is, why is it so hard to be a believer? God makes it very hard for sceptics, and if he's omnipotent, uh, it seems to me that one could get better evidence. Lots of agnostics make this point. The, agnosti- or the, atheists, rather. the atheists aren't, in this case, um, dogmatically, as it were, opposed to the possibility. It seems to me that I like to claim, although my students laugh occasionally, I claim I'm open-minded. I would just like to see something that's reasonable. You know... Uh, God declaring himself in some way that is unambiguous and uh, hard to refute. I think even the most staunch believer has to uh, admit that there's nothing quite like that. In fact, um, I was going to say this earlier, but I haven't said it now. Many of you profess to have deep uh, beliefs uh, and, and strong convictions, but you have to recognize that, of course, your strong convictions about the belief in God are different from a lot of the other things, which is evidenced by your being here. If we announce that we're going to have a debate next week, on whether the Harbour Bridge exists, I don't think many people will come. And so clearly your strong convictions about some things are very different from the other things that you believe. So the question is why you have strong convictions which are so uh, uh, disparate and so different in their their grounds. Again, on the causal principle which uh, uh, Dr Craig raised again, he, I think, um, suggested in his last words, I quote from what I understood him to say, that... The causal principle has never been disconfirmed as a principle of science, and he's relying on that. I don't think that's quite fair. In the remarks which I think I quoted, but certainly are in his uh, writings, he is explicitly acknowledging that the principle, as I think I said, is not from science, but from metaphysics. And he can't rely on the the scientific notions, of cause, which are confined in their domain of application to within the realm, and certainly are not thought to uh, be relevant to the entire universe under the current standard theory which Dr. Craig is relying on. So uh, it seems to me that uh, the notion of cause that he's appealing to, which is the common sense notion, which we all respond to, is misleading here. And in fact, the notion of cause which he has in mind is one which philosophers call, and he's referred to this uh, in connection with the philosopher uh, Swinburne, he refers to the idea of what's called agent causation. Agent causation is a notion which comes from human behaviour and an attempt to explain the human will, how we seem to move our limbs, as it were, out of nothing. Well, even within the realm of human behaviour, this is a questionable and, in fact, uh, probably redundant uh, notion, which is suspicious when it's thought to be in conflict with the ordinary scientific cause that we understand from within our science. And so, in fact, uh, both Swinburne and Dr Craig speak of the personhood, as we've heard him say, of the uh, cause of the universe. This is not exactly Michelangelo's bearded man in the clouds reaching out his hand, but it's pretty close. Thank you.
0: Well, I must say that one of the only things I didn't enjoy about tonight was uh, really seeing two people who are incipient friends of mine fighting in public. Um, that wasn't very enjoyable, but the rest of it. we do. Uh, I, I think it would be appropriate if we thanked the two speakers because they're not here like in some of the televised great debates which are much more about entertainment than substance. Uh, because they're paid, they've come out in their own time uh, to debate serious issues and to help us think it through again. So I'd like us to thank both of them again. Thank you very much for coming. Thank you for coming, thank you to the speakers, and have a good trip home.